into this existence, and he wasn't welcomed into this place, uh, except by but a handful of folks. Uh, today we gather together as men and women who follow and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and we certainly welcome him here today, and uh, we're delighted to be able to come together today. We want to welcome you. If you're a guest, know we're delighted you're worshiping with us. Ask you to take the side of the bulletin where it asks for some information. I'd love for you to fill that out. And drop that in the offering plate or give it to a staff member today as a way we can connect with you and get to know a little more about you and have an opportunity to share with you a little bit more about who we are here at Northside. We're going to take a moment to greet each other now, so if you see someone you don't recognize, go say good morning, and we're going to continue worshiping together here in just a moment.
With the birth of Jesus, there is hope. The Messiah has come to make all things new, to set things right, to usher in peace. And when everything is as it should be, that stirs within us pure, unbidden joy. It's a divinely inspired message that really could only be delivered by one of God's angels. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. 
Joy is especially a peculiar thing. Joy is not manufactured, unlike happiness. Man can labor and toil for happiness, and if he makes the right moves and everything goes according to plan, he may very well attain it. A happy home, a happy marriage, a happy life. But rarely, if ever, do things go according to plan. Joy is different. Joy, birth, and spontaneity, not only, I mean, not carefully executed plans, and there's thereby more mysterious. Shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joy is strange, prolonged? What the gladsome tidings be which inspire your heavenly song? Joy can happen anywhere, anytime, even under the most uncompromising circumstances. It can even be found in the midst of suffering. With tear-stained cheeks, joy can be a baby boy sleeping in an animal food trough or a sinless savior nailed to the tree. As we light the candle of joy, let us remember that regardless of our circumstances, joy is found in Christ. May we never lose sight of the joy, the freedom that comes through Jesus. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive a king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Is there room in your heart? for King Jesus. If you'll stand with us again. God rest ye merry gentlemen let nothing you dismay remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. From God our Heavenly Father, a blessed angel came. To certain shepherds brought tidings of the same. How that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Now to the Lord sing praises, all ye with True love and brotherhood, each other now embrace. This holy tide of Christmas, all others tuck to face. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, 
these tithes and offerings that are about to be taken and please let us all have a merry christmas season and us uh and for us to remember the real meaning that you sent your son to die for us in your name amen
Let's stand once again as we sing. standing as we share God's word together this morning from Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, I'll begin in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Father, for the armor of God that we are called to put on. God, I pray that you might help us, Lord, to, uh, to take this armor on every single day of our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated want to encourage you, uh, if you were able to sign up for this Advent reading that has been going on online, I uh, want to encourage you that we're using that same platform and expanding that into the new year. We're going to begin January 1st with a Through the Bible reading plan church-wide. So if you've already got that all established, then you're, you've got a leg up on everyone else. So you can, uh, you can actually use the link in the bulletin that we provided today and you can sign up to be part of that Through the Bible campaign that we're beginning on January 1st. We'll be reading through the Bible chronologically as a church. If you don't have access to the, uh, to the internet or, or, or in that application, then that's okay. You have access to a Bible. And because you have access to a Bible, you too can participate. We'll be posting the, the daily readings in the bulletin on the back where the calendar is. Each day's readings will be posted coming up starting January 1st. If you're not sure where to begin, it begins Genesis chapter 1 and, uh, and goes on from there. And by the end of uh, 2018, we will have completely read through the Bible from cover to cover. And we are looking forward to God using that as a church family for us to just get in the Word together and, and, and go through that. Our Wednesday night Bible studies and prayer meetings, the Bible study there will come from the, the week's readings, and so we'll be, be following along in that capacity. But I just want to put that in front of you. You've got some time to get signed up and, and, and get ready for that. 
Uh, I do like the online piece because it just provides a, a, a platform for us to communicate and hold one another accountable. Uh, if you don't get your little check mark, then we know that you're uh, you're not completing the daily uh, the daily readings. And so uh, so, and I would encourage you don't delay because it's one thing if you're behind a couple of days on a on a daily devotional, you can make that up pretty easily. But if you start getting behind two or three or four days on a through the Bible reading program then you find yourself well behind, and it's, uh, it's, it's hard to catch up, especially when you get into some of those more interesting passages in Leviticus and, and Numbers and Chronicles and things like that. So, uh, so you do want to stay caught up to that so you can, you can finish. I'm looking forward to that and being a part of that. We've been talking for the last several weeks about the battle, the battle that we are all engaged in, this spiritual battle that is taking place. And we have talked about the fact that there is a very real battle that is happening. It's not against flesh and blood, but against uh, the spiritual forces of darkness in the world. We know that in this battle that our strength is limited and will eventually fail, but we don't stand in our own strength. We stand in the Lord's strength. And then the Apostle Paul commands us to take on various elements of a centurion's armor, symbolically linking these armor pieces to various tenets of the Christian faith. We talked about the foundational garment that we are to put on as a belt of truth that binds everything about our faith together. We're then told to take on the breastplate of righteousness and versus the breastplate of self-righteousness. We are to be guarded and protected and covered with the righteousness of Jesus that is given to us as a result of Jesus shedding his blood for our sins so that our filthiness is then covered with his righteousness and our interaction with the Lord then changes because we don't come before the Lord in our filthiness. We come before the Lord in his righteousness, which is an incredible transaction that takes place. We're told to make sure that our feet have got the shoes of readiness that's, that's informed by the gospel of peace. Those shoes help us to stand firm and they compel us forward into a dark and dying world. And then last week we talked about the shield of faith. And that shield of faith is designed to protect us against the flaming darts of the arrow, the, the flaming darts of the enemy. It's designed to give us a way to view the world. And so our worldview is what we call that, is informed by faith. Today, however, I want us to look at what comes next which is the helmet of salvation. Now, we're very familiar with, with, with helmets and the importance of helmets today. Uh, we are very much aware of the danger of head injuries and concussions and traumatic brain injuries and things like that. If you've got a, a kid playing sports, then it's very likely that you have heard about the risks associated with concussions and things like that. You've heard probably about the, the NFL concussion settlement that was reached not long ago that's guaranteed to pay for any NFL player who has any kind of problem health-related from concussion symptoms for now for the next 65 years, I think was the terms of the settlement. It's supposed to be nearly a billion-dollar settlement that was reached to cover these guys and their concussion symptoms. Recently, the United States Soccer Federation was met with stiff criticism for their move to ban the heading of the ball in youth soccer programs. If you see a kid playing soccer and he's 10 years or under, just about anywhere in the country, you will find that those kids aren't learning to head the ball anymore because the brain that's developing is so susceptible to concussions that they've ruled that out. Uh, and if they're following the rules, then every single coach of every single sport in every single middle and high school in the state of Georgia must undergo some sort of concussion protocol training. I've been through it many times, and uh, if your kid plays sport, you probably can count on the fact that your kid's coaches have been through some sort of concussion training to, uh, to make them aware of what those symptoms are if they're met with a concussion on the playing field. So we understand now 
that an injury to the brain is always something to take seriously. I look back at those old pictures of football players wearing those leather helmets, and I think, man, I bet they got their bell rung a lot when they were playing in those leather helmets. But we understand now that it's something serious, something to always take seriously. We know that even a minor concussion can have serious complications if it's not treated and dealt with correctly. And so we've understood for a long time about the fact that head injuries are, are significant. Um, now, now, back in Paul's day, they didn't necessarily understand concussion protocol. They did always have to limit screen time. As a matter of fact, in Paul's day, there was no screen time for anyone who had any kind of head injury during that day. They didn't have screens then to limit. Uh, and even though they may not have completely understood the, the, the role of brain injuries and things like that, they, people have always understood that the brain is a vital organ to protect. If you're looking out to guard your, your vital organs, you're going to make sure that that brain is taken care of. Uh, they understood, uh, you, you kill enough people, they understood that hitting somebody in the head pretty hard was a good way to beat the enemy. Um, so they understood that the brain was a vital organ that needed to be protected. And so it's no wonder that Paul made sure to include the helmet in his list of armor. This is what a centurion's helmet looked like. It was called a, a galea was what the Roman centurion's helmet was called. And they all look a little bit differently. If you've seen any kind of movie that's been based in the Roman Empire, then you've probably seen a centurion's helmet. Maybe you've seen the kind that have got the big, the big uh, you know, feathers down the middle, that sort of thing. They, all of them were a little bit different. But it was basically a metal structure. It was lined with cork or sponge that was designed to improve its comfort and improve shock absorption. Uh, it would cover the top of the head, the back of the skull. Sometimes there was additional coverage around the face and sometimes down in front of the nose. may have varied. All these things were fabricated by hand, so it's unlikely that there was any kind of uh, standardization except just basic rudimentary standardization. But the galea was a very effective tool to protect the centurion's brain, particularly against archery attacks. Now keep in mind, Paul is not concerned about the, the battle axes of the enemy. He's not concerned about the swords of the enemy. He's only been talking about the flaming arrows of the enemy. And so if I'm looking to have myself protected against the flaming arrows of the enemy, a galea, a centurion's helmet, was a very effective tool in that, that regard. The only weapons that were effective against the galea were heavy hand-to-hand combat sort of implements like axes and hammers and swords. Isn't that something great to think about? You'll notice, though, that Paul is only concerned about the arrows of the devil, and so the galea is very appropriate. Now, what would happen if you decided to go to battle without your galea? then you would be completely dependent upon your hand-to-hand fighting skills to protect your pumpkin. So you're hoping that you can beat the guy that's got a sword. You're hoping you can beat the guy that's got an axe. You're hoping you can beat the guy that's got a hammer. Otherwise, your pumpkin's going to get smashed instead of his. But the problem is, is that does absolutely nothing to protect you from an arrow. You see, even if you were hiding behind that shield, if you didn't have a helmet on, you would still be vulnerable for attack because you'd have to have your head up to be able to see where you were going and an archer's arrow, well, is trained right at you. You see, with a soldier's galea, that arrow might just skim off the surface with little more than a loud ding. But without a helmet, you were opening yourself up to the potential of a fatal arrow strike right through the top of your noggin. It would not be wise for you to go to battle with your helmet missing. 
And generally speaking, I think I can make this generalization, you're not very useful in the battle if you have an arrow lodged in the top of your skull. So Paul then changes this conversation from a centurion's helmet to begin to talk to us about the helmet of salvation. And you may be asking yourself, what in the world does a helmet have to do with salvation? Well, I'm glad that you're having that conversation right now. Because the Bible speaks to us about salvation. And it talks to us about salvation in three different tenses. You may have heard this before, past, present, and future salvation. Now, this isn't some sort of weird new doctrine or some sort of weird new soteriology is the fancy word about salvation. This is just simple biblical theology about what salvation is. If you're a Christian, then you can think of a time in the past when you were saved right? That's part of our testimony. We're asked to share our testimony. Part of our testimony is, is how did you get saved? Anybody ever ask that question? Tell me about when you were saved, right? Sometimes in our evangelism, we talk about that. You need to be saved. Well, well, sometimes we don't even know what we're being saved from. We have that language in the church, and it's not always clear what we were in danger of if we don't clearly communicate that. But if you're in the church and in the kingdom, you hear that language a lot. Well, I was saved. I was saved. Maybe you were saved at vacation Bible school. Maybe you were saved as a result of a conversation with a coworker. Maybe you were saved at a revival. Or maybe it was just an ordinary worship service on an ordinary Sunday and you were saved as a result of, of, of hearing the gospel in that context. When we use evangelistic language, we plead with people to be saved. This is what we are asking them to do. What is that? Well, it's a choice that someone makes to take hold of the gift of salvation that's been offered to them. Many times that, that choice, that salvation is expressed through a prayer. We call that frequently now the sinner's prayer. I think most of us could probably look at a time in our life when we can remember bowing with somebody, kneeling with somebody, and praying the sinner's prayer, which was simply our best effort to express to the Lord what we felt was going on inside of us. And I think that's still a great thing to do. If someone said, I wanted to be saved, I'd immediately talk to them about the gospel and I'd lead them through the sinner's prayer as a way to express verbally what's going on inside of them spiritually. And so this is when we talk about being saved in the past, this is what we're talking about. And Paul speaks about this in numerous places, but I like what 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 says. He says that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. We refer to this past act of salvation, what we call justification. It's the moment when, when your spiritual condition and your legal condition spiritually has been changed. You're no longer guilty, you're now innocent, you're not guilty as a result of your sin, you're innocent as a result of Jesus' shed blood. That's what we call justification. The books have been changed. It's as if you were standing before on trial before a judge and you had been convicted and deemed guilty, but someone comes and stands in, in the place of your punishment, takes the punishment upon themselves, and then the judge looks and says, they're no longer guilty, they're innocent because this person has taken their punishment. That is justification. It takes place at a moment in time, and if you're a Christian today, it's something that happened in the past. Well, if you're a Christian, it all, the Bible also speaks about a type of ongoing salvation. The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
We refer to this type of ongoing salvation as the word sanctification. That's the big fancy $3 word for what this ongoing type of salvation means. Now, this doesn't mean that our salvation is secured by works. But it does mean that if you're in Christ, you ought to be busy. If you're a Christian, anybody running out of stuff to do as a Christian? Anybody got it all, you know, sitting back in the Christian recliner thinking, Lord, there's just nothing else to do. I've accomplished everything. Everyone who needs the gospel's got it. Lord, just come on back because we're finished. There's always plenty to do. There's always plenty to serve. There's always plenty of places to go and share the gospel. There's always plenty of Bible stories and Bible studies to teach. There's always something to do. So we ought to be busy working for the kingdom, but we're not working to be saved. The idea of salvation being an ongoing thing is very important because the bottom line is this, is that though I was justified and I can point to a moment in time when I was justified, when I was saved, the bottom line is that I'm still a mess. I'm still a mess. There's still stuff that I do wrong. There's still stuff that I don't get right. There's still decisions that I make that are foolish. There's still sin issues that I wrestle with. I am still a mess, and as a mess, I need work every single day. Does that apply to just about everybody in the room? I hope so. Otherwise, we need to swap places. We refer to this ongoing process of working out our mess as sanctification, and so it's an ongoing thing that will one day come to completion. Isn't that good news? There's a day coming that our sanctification will be completed. Now, there is a slight problem with that if you're nervous. The problem is is that to complete your sanctification, you have to either die or be raptured. So if you're nervous about that process, well, we're going to have to work on that, okay? Because there is a future sense of salvation. The Bible points to a day of salvation that will come in the future. This occurs when our life on earth is finished and our sanctification is done. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 says this well. He says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Listen to what he says. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So he's not saying that that we're not saved. He's not saying that we're not going through the process of being saved. He's saying that there's coming a time that salvation will be ultimate and final. And that's what we call the doctrine of glorification. It's when this life is finished, we are all done and our sanctification is complete and we are ushered into the kingdom forever and ever. Amen. And we stand in a perfected state before the Lord because we've been perfected by the blood of Jesus. That is the the future salvation that we speak to. And as Christians, that is where our future hope is, is, is vested. We are hoping in the day that all this comes to a close and we stand before the Lord in a perfected state just as he's wanted us to be, that we're no longer a mess that needs worked on every single day. But for all of eternity, we stand before the Lord in glory and in perfection. That's future salvation. So when we talk of salvation, this is what we have in mind. This is what we are thinking. It's, it's more than just a, just a simple walk of the aisle right? It's more than just a decision that you made when you were a kid that you hope that'll get you through the rest of your life. It's an ongoing thing. It's something that we need to be thinking about on a daily basis. As I wake up in the morning, Lord, I need to work out my salvation with fear and trembling today. That, is a, that is a, should be the cry of a Christian's heart where God continues to work in and through me. Lord, I long for the day. We've said goodbye to some saints in the last couple of months who have finished their race and they have been saved ultimately and final as they now stand before the Lord. 
These are things that we think about when we talk about salvation. This is what we need to have in mind. So this is the thing, though. The primary effect of the gospel is that it leads us to salvation, right? The primary effect of the gospel is that it leads us to salvation. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is. What is the gospel? It is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. The ultimate effect of the gospel of God coming to earth in the form of a babe that we call Jesus, taking on human flesh, of of dying on the cross in the place for our sins, of rising again, of, of the promise of his return. The ultimate effect of the gospel is salvation is made available to all who would believe. Anyone who would believe. Who, who can be saved? Anyone who will believe. No one's beyond it. No one is, 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 is too far away from it. Anyone who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation can be saved. Now, there's different nuances to this we could explore and spend a lot of time talking about each of these phases, these tenses of salvation. But I want us to consider why Paul would use a helmet to convey this truth about the gospel. This is very important. You see, the truth of the matter is this, is that we need the gospel to protect our minds. We need the gospel to protect our minds. We, we understand this more today than perhaps ever before. Thoughts have consequences, right? What you think has consequences for how you act, how you speak, how your relationships are structured. What you think has consequences in every aspect of life. What and how we think affects everything. Part of what's wrong with our culture today is that we are reaping the benefits of corrupted thinking. We are reaping the benefits of corrupted thinking. And Satan knows all too well, if he can corrupt the way we think, then he will render us useless and ineffective in the battle. It's like walking around with an arrow sticking out of the top of our head. Why aren't you thinking correctly? I don't know. It feels like something's wrong. Well, what's wrong is if there's an arrow implanted in your brain and it is affecting the way that you are thinking. Case in point, this morning, there are millions and millions of people who are meeting for worship in churches that promote a false gospel. I'm reluctant to even call them churches. Whether it be the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement, whether it be the works-based righteousness of the Roman Catholic Church, or, or the cultish sects that have no sense of biblical Christianity. The fact of the matter is, is we could look at all of these people as potential warriors in the battle, but their thought, thinking, has been so corrupted by so many bad doctrines and bad teaching and bad ideas that all of these potential warriors in this mighty army have gotten lost before they've ever made it to the front lines. Their thinking is corrupt. Their thinking is wrong. And because their thinking is wrong, then they're, they're ineffective in the fight. Now, you may feel today like you're safe from all these problems. But don't let your guard down. Because the reality is this. There are plenty of ways that Satan can corrupt your thinking, even as a Christian, so that you're rendered ineffective in the battle. So what arrows does Satan want to hurl at the brain of a believer? What, what 
thoughts does Satan want to corrupt in your head? Well, there's three, and I've done you a favor today. I've alliterated them, right? I've alliterated them, and, and the first three letters of each of these words is alliterated, so that's even bonus points for, for preacher school alliteration there. What arrows is Satan wanting to hurl at you to corrupt your thinking, that you need to cover that brain with the helmet of salvation? Well, the first one is conformity. Conformity. As a believer, perhaps our greatest thought problem relates to the problem of conformity. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, warns us very clearly, Do not be conformed. Do not be conformed to what? To this world. But instead of being conformed to this world, be transformed by what? By the renewal of your mind that you may test and discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are constantly, as men and women of God, being tugged in the direction of conformity. Every system that exists in our world today is demanding that we conform to it. Our political system demands that we conform. Our economic system demands that we conform. Our cultural and social systems demand that we conform. If you haven't noticed, evangelical Christianity is becoming a stranger and stranger voice in what has become an overwhelming chorus of insanity. You are the outcasts. You are the strangers. You are the people whose voice doesn't fit in. And everything is demanding for you to conform. Everything. Everything. And the Bible is clear with us. Do not be conformed. Instead, be transformed. See, even though the systems of this world may disagree on many things. The one thing these systems agree on is that the biggest threat that this world faces is gathered in churches like ours across the world today. That's the biggest threat. Because this is the voice of reason in a crazy and insane world. Honestly, it is a threat. This is a threat, right? Who else is having this conversation today? Who else is, is demanding that people not conform to the patterns of this world, to the patterns of darkness? Who else is demanding that? No one's having that conversation. But what happens when Christians let their guard down? What happens when we take that helmet off? Very simple. We begin to conform. And this is what we see happening all the time. And it never begins with a wholesale jump off the cliff, Right? A Christian denomination that historically in the 1900s was solid doesn't just wholesale begin to jump off the cliff. It doesn't just go south in uh, overnight. It's always a slippery slope that leads us into carnality. I had a professor one time who said it this way, Satan always prefers to ask you for a dance before he asks you for a date. Satan always prefers to ask you for a dance before he asks you for a date. He doesn't want to make you think he's investing much in you. He just wants to twirl around the dance floor. And this is what conformity is. Conformity always begins with a kinder, gentler-sounding cousin 
called compromise. That's where it begins, right? Well, we'll compromise on this right here because this right here is okay. We'll compromise on this because this gets us a better standing in this environment or in this situation. So we'll compromise here. It's funny, though, that it's, it's not compromises about, you know, a church compromising on the color of its carpet. It's compromises about some sort of biblical virtue that is spelled out very clearly in the Word of God. Well, we'll compromise on this right here because this is okay. This is no big deal. But what happens after compromise, after compromise, after compromise is that you begin to look an awful lot like that which you are not to be conformed to. You begin to look like the world. But if you'll guard your mind, if you'll put that helmet of salvation on, if you'll protect your noggin with the gospel, the bottom line is this. There's there's no compromise too compelling. Well, wouldn't you like to compromise on this? Well, no, because it's real clear for us. This is obvious. It's spelled out for us. So there's no compromise when it's spelled out for us. There's no negotiation when it's been outlined for us. We're going to protect our thinking. We're going to protect our mind with the truth of the gospel. And then there's no room for compromise on things that are clearly spelled out. And that arrow of conformity, boo, ricochets right off. A little more than a ding. Another arrow that is in Satan's quiver that affects our mind is the arrow of confusion. Confusion. You ever notice a lot of confusion today? There's no consistency of thought in the world today. There's no consistency of thought. And when there's no consistency of thought, then all you have left is confusion. Listen, when you look at the secular world, you won't find anything but confusion. For example, when is a baby a baby? Anybody know? Well, you do. But do they know? When is it a baby? Well, this joker over in Alabama that just got elected to Senate, did you hear his stance on, on, you know when he's pro-life, when the baby's out of the birth canal? Up until that point, he's for whatever mom needs to do. Isn't that interesting? It's horrifying. It's confusion. When is a male a male or a female a female? Nobody knows anymore. When is a crime really a crime? If you can figure these things out, then you're doing better than most in the world out there. And if you can figure them out, you could probably make a lot of money as a consultant on a news channel. There's nothing but confusion in the world today. And everyone is confused. But as for a Christian, guess what? Confusion should not be part of our vocabulary. Why? Because, for instance, 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of, but of peace. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us to be sober-minded. Be watchful. Psalm 119, 34, David prays, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. When we are in Christ, there's no room for us to be confused. Now, understand this. When it comes to the things of God, there may be difficult things. Right? There are things that that are hard to understand. There's things that, that don't come easy. 
There are things that we don't know yet. There may be things that God has decided not to share with us. But that's not what confusion is. Not knowing something does not equal confusion. You see, when it comes to God's people, we guard our minds against such confusion by putting on the helmet of salvation. We seek after the Lord's guidance. The Apostle John challenges us as Christians to test the Spirit so we can know which one's right and which one is wrong. And David cried out to the Lord in Psalm 119 again, Give me understanding. How? According to your word. The standard for understanding, for those who who were writing the Bible, said the standard of understanding is in accordance with God's word. So what's the antidote antidote of confusion? Well, it's truth. Ever been in a situation that's been just confusing? You've not known what to do, where to go. You know, maybe you're going on a trip and someone else is coordinating and organizing it and you've just not had a real good sense of what direction you need to go. Well, how does that confusion end? When there's truth that's been explained. This is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to go. This is how we're going to get there. And then suddenly where there was confusion, there is a sense of of order and rightness because truth has been explained. When we look at confusion in the world today, we have to recognize that the antidote for confusion is truth. And we as men and women of God, we put on the helmet of salvation to guard our minds against that confusion. And there's a third arrow. There's a third arrow that the helmet of salvation guards us against, and that's the arrow of condemnation. Lastly, this morning, I want us to consider the arrow of condemnation. These are arrows that manipulate our thoughts. And so how does condemnation affect our thinking? I think it affects us in two different ways. The the first way is this, is that those who have got the arrow of condemnation affecting their thoughts, it robs them of their security. It robs them of their security. I can't fathom the appeal of a theological system that that teaches against eternal security. There's a lot of folks out there who believe that that once you you become a Christian, you can lose that. That can be taken away from you. And, And I don't understand the appeal of such a system. But you don't have to hold on to bad doctrine to struggle with security. Has anybody ever had doubts? Sure. Absolutely. We've had doubts before. These doubts are a product of that arrow of condemnation. It's it's lodged in and it's affecting the way we think. It's affecting, we know certain things to be true, but there's something in there that's messing with the way we think about it. Anybody Anybody ever had an internal voice parading your past failures in front of your mind's eye? Look at what you did then. Look at what you said then. Look at where you went. Look what you were like. This is the person you, this is, this is who you used to be. You're still like that. That ever happened to anybody where, where all those past failures and past things were dragged out of the, the closet of your mind and paraded in front of you and it was so real that you think everybody around you could see it? That's the arrow of condemnation. That's the arrow of condemnation that's been, that's been fired at you and it's worked its way into your thinking. You see, the Bible declares Satan to be the accuser of the brethren, and we find these accusations taking place. It's a product of that satanic arrow of condemnation. But what does that helmet of salvation declare about condemnation? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All those accusations, those are gone because there's no condemnation. 
All those doubts are gone because you're no longer condemned. If you look at the cross, your condemnation was nailed to it, and it's not there anymore. You put on the gospel of of, uh, the, the helmet of salvation, and all your condemnation is dealt with at the cross, and death has been defeated because Jesus has rose again. There is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. For others, that arrow of condemnation can keep people from even entering the kingdom. You ever heard somebody say that? I've done too much wrong. I'm too bad. He knows me too well. He couldn't know me that well and still love me enough to save me. And that's that arrow of condemnation at work. Because what's God want? God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God's desire is not that anyone should perish, but that all would come to repentance. God's desire is not that you wallow around in self-pity and self-hate for the rest of your life. God's desire is that you would run to his son, Jesus Christ, for salvation and deliverance from now and forevermore. He doesn't want you to wrestle and struggle with doubts anymore because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He wants that arrow plucked out of your head and then replaced with a protective seal that we call the helmet of salvation that that arrow would never penetrate again. Some of you in the room today, you've got an arrow of condemnation that's piercing your heart. And it's convinced you that you're not good enough. And Jesus holds out his nail-scarred hands and says the only piercing that had to be done was done right here and right here and right here. I want to encourage you today, church, that if you've got some bad thoughts that have weaseled their way into your head, some self-defeating thoughts, some accusations, if there's confusion, if there's, if there's any of those things that have worked their way in, if you find that you are conforming too much to the world outside, can I encourage you today to open that closet up And take out that helmet and put it firmly and securely on your head that the gospel might guard your thoughts and protect your noggin from the arrows of conformity, from the arrows of confusion, and from the arrows of condemnation. Bow your heads with me, please. Lord, we come before you today grateful for the helmet of salvation that's been provided to us to protect our brains, to protect our minds and the way we think with the truth of the gospel. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to guard our minds against the attacks of the enemy, that the challenge, they wouldn't have access to our thoughts to change the way we think, that we might think rooted firmly in truth, guide our understanding, inform our understanding in accordance with the truth that's in your word. Father, I pray that if there's any here today who 
who stand condemned with an arrow of condemnation pointed directly at them, God, that today they would recognize that there's no condemnation in Christ. He took care of that for them on the cross forever and ever and ever if they would but put their faith and trust in Him for salvation and not themselves. And they can leave today knowing that they're no longer condemned. Instead, they're justified in a right place before the Lord, courtesy of Jesus. God, help us to guard our minds against the pull to conform, to guard our minds against the the confusion that's so rampant in the world today, and to guard our minds against the condemnation of the devil. That we might think clearly and think rightly about you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and have a time of invitation. If you're here and you're not a Christian today, if you're not a believer, today is the day to put your faith and trust in Jesus alone for salvation. If you're here and there's doubts and struggles in your mind, and you just need to come before the Lord and ask him to, to, to reshore up that helmet that you need to put on and, and, help, and, and help to correct the thinking that's, that's flawed in your mind, you can come and pray and do that. We're going to stand and sing. If you're not a Christian, today's the day of salvation for you. Come forward and make those intentions known. seated for just a second.